Well, good morning, Flood Church. I am uh, so happy to be here with you this morning. And uh, I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to the passage for this morning, which is Matthew chapter 9, from verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 15. Um, okay, why don't you stand together and let us read the scripture from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. it if, if it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Our series we're in right now is called Countercultural. Transformed people live transformed lives. So as transformed people, there are different cultural principles that we need to reject, and there are other kingdom principles that we need to embrace. I recently went for a haircut and I sat in the chair for approximately 30 minutes. I chatted with the hairdresser. She, I thought, was cutting my hair into what would be a new haircut. I was on a time limit. I had two children with me, and Jeff was coming back to collect us. And when it was all said and done and I had paid the money, I got home and I thought, this feels exactly the same. I went for the transformation I went through the process of undergoing that transformation, yet when I found myself at home, I did not feel transformed. I felt shaggy, <laughs> and my hair had not changed the way that I had expected, expected it to. So our series, Countercultural, is about a journey dis to discover what it is that Jesus wants to do in each of us that will transform the way we live, that will say no to this thing that is considered normal, 
and that will say yes to this kingdom principle. Something that will let go of that thing which we have always done and will wholeheartedly receive the Jesus way. So many people confess Christ as their Lord, but they live as though they've never been touched by him. It doesn't mean just coming to church on Sunday or even attending one of our fabulous growth groups during the week. Growth groups, shout out. <laughs> it's also something you do in your workplace, in your home, in your school, in your marriage, in your parenting, with your friends, with your relationships, even with your boyfriend or girlfriend. So the gospel needs to actually come into every aspect of our lives and transform each of those areas. But it's not easy. It's not a simple process to reject that normal cultural thing and to embrace something that Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Let's look at just a few of them. They'll be on the slide there. If you want to gain your life, then you must lose it. If you want to be first, then you must be last. If you want to receive, then you must give. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. If you want to have treasure in heaven, meaning treasure that lasts, give to the poor by selling everything you have on earth. If you want to be exalted, then you must humble yourself. So the gospel is so radical, it transforms everything about our lives. It moves us from accepting this thing as normal and then embracing that thing as the new normal. Not only do we believe it to be true, but we believe it so truly that we find a new way to live. So where does the transformation take place? Does it happen on the outside with what we wear or how we do our hair? Or what about adopting a certain uniform or wearing a certain style of clothes that identifies us with other people? I recently had what I thought was a great suggestion and I mentioned it to one of our growth group members that we should get matching Chitenji to wear shirts and dresses for church events and <laughs> weddings and she flatly refused that suggestion. She said, no, that would be too far. But I just feel like if I take it to the larger group rather than this one member, maybe someone like Brian Longway will, <laughs> will take us there. <laughs> but of course, the transformation we experience is not by the clothes we put on or the things that we do to the rest of our body, but it's an internal process that produces the external reality. So we are in this world, but we are not of it. And because we've been transformed, we have to live as though who've been transformed. So let's look at our passage. And we're going to examine some cultural norms that we have to reject. And then embrace kingdom principles that believers need to practice and have as evidence in our daily lives of Christ's transformation. So our passage starts with Jesus and his disciples. They're in Galilee. They're on a mission visiting many towns and villages. He's ministering to them. He's healing their bodies. He's casting out demons. But more than anything, he's healing their spiritual souls. His ministry is teaching, proclaiming, healing. And the crowds have experienced his supernatural power while at the same time experiencing his humanity. Of course, he's limited to time and space. He has to travel by foot 
moving between these obscure places. I had a professor in Bible college who called it a peripatetic ministry. Peripatetic, meaning moving about by foot. I paid a lot of money for that degree. <laughs> so Jesus, he's moved for, with compassion for these people, not only because of what they're physically or spiritually experiencing, but also they've been moving around with him. They need help. They need healing. And he's moved with compassion. And he actually compares them to sheep without a shepherd. Now let me remind you, at this point, he was primarily preaching in synagogues which are places that have spiritual leaders. So it means these sheep had shepherds, but their spiritual needs were yet unmet. How many of us have a friend like that who might have a shepherd, but they're wandering around aimlessly, they're not getting spiritual nourishment, they're falling even into dangerous places. So that's what a sheep without a shepherd looks like. Getting into trouble because there's no one to guide or help it, or to make sure that it has clean water. And Jesus says these very interesting words. The harvest is so huge, but the workers are so few. The crop is ready, but there isn't anyone who's ready to harvest it. And I just thought about this in our context here in Malawi. Imagine a huge field ready to be harvested of maize, but unable to find anyone to properly harvest it. That would be impossible. Even I know how to harvest maize. I grew up on a farm in Canada, so. And so Jesus says, so please ask the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers. So chapter 10 opens and he gives the disciples not a mission or not a choice, but a mission, not an option, but he actually gives them a mandate. So these people have spent time with him. They've been with him in the ministry. They've observed the way that he ministered to people who were sick and unwell. And they have received this mission because of a call he has given them. And he also gives them the authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every sickness and disease. So what then does this passage say to us who are being transformed about being countercultural? I have nine cultural norms that I won't take long with, I promise you. <coughs> nine cultural norms that we need to reject and a corresponding countercultural kingdom principle we must embrace. So first, we reject publicity and we embrace communion with Christ. Looking at what the scriptures say to us this morning, it's the private conference of the disciples with Christ that actually qualifies them for their public usefulness. It's the time that they've spent alone with him observing the ministry that allows them to have this public place of doing the ministry. But the culture would say, go public, be in front, get on the stage and preach. You can laugh, it's okay. <laughs> Take center stage, be someone special, offer something that no one else has. Do whatever you can to bring glory to yourself, to bring spotlight to yourself, and then they will exalt you and lift you up above others. That this is the qualification of ministry, these kinds of acts will certainly certify you as one who is on a mission. But looking at the passage, it's the disciples' private conference with Christ that qualified them for their public usefulness. It was the time they spent alone with him, the months of watching him, working with him, 
walking daily in that peripatetic ministry, being in sacred intimacy with the Son of God that actually allows them to have a part in this public ministry. So then what about you and I? Friends, it's, it's not the things that we do in public which qualify us to use, be used by Jesus. It's not the behaviors that we have in public, but it's the disciplines that we actually exercise in private in our own lives that bring forth true communion between Christ and disciple, which then equip us to be used for his mission. So they, ha they have this time of equipping because of the, the moments and the months that they've spent with him. And they're also given the authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every sickness and disease. So the authority comes from Christ, which confirms the actual doctrine that he taught, not the power held by the disciples. So therefore, number two, we reject postures of power and we embrace sound doctrine and teaching. Miracles confirm the doctrine that Christ taught. It wasn't the power of the disciples. The miracles are actually an affirmation of the ministry of Christ, of the presence of the kingdom drawing near. They're not a declaration that these powerful disciples are able to do this within themselves. The miracles affirm that the demons should flee and the sickness should be healed and the leprosy should be cleansed and the kingdom has come near. Now sometimes we have the tendency to think that because someone seems to have a lot of spiritual power, it means they also have spiritual authority. But the scriptures are clear that the authority doesn't come from the person or the ability or even the holy water or blessing cloths they may sell. Uh, I'll tell you a personal story about that. My grandmother, so I'm Canadian, uh, we've been in Malawi for four years, just to give you some background, we have four of our own children. My grandmother um, brought me to Christ when I was a young person. And she was Pentecostal as we understand it here, so she enjoyed, so, amen. <laughs> so she enjoyed, you know, some of those extreme things that uh, I feel concerned about right now. <laughs> Um, and one of them was something called a prayer cloth. So basically, it would be something like a large piece of cotton that would be cut into pieces about this big that a specific prophet, teacher, evangelist, I won't say his name, he is Canadian though, <laughs> prayed over, and then you just have to send your donation, and then you, and then they will mail it to you. And my grandma used to put, <laughs> this is embarrassing, <laughs> She used to put this on uh, underneath her pillow, inside of the pillowcase. So she would slide it inside. So that way, every night, her head was resting on the blessed prayer cloth. And uh, we're, we're from a First Nations background, which you might understand as native or uh, red Indian, to use a term that I don't feel comfortable with, um, or American Indian is another term. So. I realized this after that my great-grandmother used to do the same thing with our traditional tobacco. So they would put it in like a small little pouch and it would be around your neck or you would carry it like within the folds of your cloth on your clothes. And it, I just connected this like on Friday afternoon as I was preparing for today. 
that those same things my grandmother believed fully with Christ, she had actually been exposed to in a different form as a young person. But as people who, we have experienced transformation, but at the same time, we are also being transformed. So we have to embrace sound doctrine and, to, and true teaching. So then we reject unsound doctrine and false teaching. And there are a lot of false teachings out there. If you have time, just Google it. The pictures that come up are remarkable. So I, none of this has happened in Malawi. I just want to give that statement. But I recently read of a pastor who held a deliverance session by walking on top of his church members while the rest of the congregation was watching. Or another pastor who blesses people's underpants in order to transfer anointing. And this one, I'm sure most of us have heard about because it was going around on social media. This pastor who would spray doom over an individual to heal them of different diseases. I think we can all agree doom is basically capable of killing anything. Uh, but I'd be very comfortable if those people could go for tests to see if they have been healed from their sickness. So there's a lot we can say about each of these methods. But I just, I want to affirm to you, it's very difficult to find a biblical grounds for most of those. So Matthew writes this passage. He wants to tell us about what should be happening when we're sent by God to do a task. The, the disciples are given specific instructions about what they should say, where they should go. And they, they should be saying specifically, the kingdom of heaven is near. In fact, it's so near that it's, it's actually right here. It's right in front of you. It's before your very eyes. The message that they proclaim, again, it's based on the relationship and the communion that they have with Christ, the one who has sent them. And the message is the kingdom is near, not the government, not the synagogue. It's the kingdom. And so number three, as people who are being transformed, we reject temporary matters and we embrace eternal priorities. The kingdom is near, and this is our message. My husband is Jeff. Jeff, just wave for anyone who doesn't know. It's really important that you see where he's sitting for this next illustration. <laughs> I did warn him about it, so fair enough. So Jeff and I were dating. It was 2005. We had actually become engaged, and we were ready to get married, and <laughs> Valentine's Day had arrived. That day where you're supposed to express your undying love for the person that you're planning to spend the rest of your life with. And I was in central Canada. He was in western Canada, so we were very far apart from one another. <coughs> but at the college I was attending, they did all kinds of different fundraisers for Valentine's Day. So one example would be they would uh, put candy in a small bag, and you could buy the candy, and it would be sent as a treat for your sweet. Everyone say, aww. So I looked in my mailbox at the school for my treat for my sweet, and I didn't find it. Aww. Another thing that they would do as a fundraiser was something called a crush for your crush. So crush is a type of soft drink that comes usually in a can, and you could buy the crush, 
give it to your crush. Didn't get my crush from my crush because I thought, I know he's so far away, but he certainly must have organized something because our wedding is like four months away and we're just so in love. I know. (laughs) Thank you, Pastor. (laughs) Pastor Sean, we might need to give you a rest from your sabbatical so you can do some marriage uh, (laughs) intervention here. (laughs) One final thing. I thought, okay. He probably couldn't have sent the money, so I understand. I bet when I get home, there'll be some flowers delivered there or something. No, nothing. I d- thank you. <laughs> Bob is in our growth group, and Bob's engaged, and so we're, like, constantly giving him advice. So this is what not to do, Bob. <laughs> so there was a time difference in, in where I was located. He was three hours behind. So time is going, it's like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, no phone call, no email, nothing. I'm really drumming this up, I know. (laughs) Obviously, there's some residual pain. (laughs) So finally, I called him. Okay, it's 11 o'clock in my location, it's 8 p.m. his location. I call him, he's in the dorms with his friends, there's a lot of noise going on. And I said, you know, do you know what today is? And he said, yeah. And I said, like, you know that it's February 14th, which means it's Valentine's Day. He said, yeah. And you know our wedding is coming up in four months, and, like, we've already booked everything, so I can't back out of it now. He said, yeah. And then I, like, I blew my lid. (laughs) That's when I... Like, there were so many opportunities, and, like, even an email. That's free to send. I know you're a college student, but come on. And this is what he said. This is the punchline. He said, (laughs) in light of eternity. (laughs) No, no, let me finish. Let me finish. It gets better. (laughs) He said, in light of eternity, what does it really matter? Brother, we got a long time here on earth, so I'll tell you what, it matters. <laughs> we told that, I told that story in our pre-marriage counseling just to verify that we did work through it. And uh, our, our marriage counselors were two British people, and they were doing everything they could not to laugh as loudly as possible. They, they were holding their faces and just trying to be very stiff upper-lipped about it, but it wasn't working. So, Jeff, I bless you today because you rejected that temporary matter. You embraced the eternal priority. (laughs) Of course, if I was still angry, I wouldn't be able to preach about it today. We have moved past it. We did get married. (laughs) Now i got to bring you back to the Bible instead of my own problem. So the purpose of the disciples' mission here is to actually lay aside that which is temporary and to take up that thing, 
that is eternal. The things that actually matter, the, the ones that really last are not crush for your crush or, tweet for your, or treat for your sweet. But they're the things that we can't see. The souls of women and men who need to hear about the God who loves them. So we have to reject temporary things which very quickly fade away. And we let go of issues that seem so big and move on. We have to run away from the pressures and the temptations that threaten to consume us while we live in this now but not yet place, this waiting space, this in-between heaven and earth grace. And with this knowledge, so then number four, we reject propaganda and we embrace proclamation. So Jesus tells the disciples, the message has been freely received. It should also be freely given. So the English in our scripture here is, is relatively tame compared to what the Greek is very strong and says, this is a free gift that must be given away. So they're not to require payment from others for their preaching. The disciples are sent with their mission to proclaim, which means they should be preaching and it should be out loud. The word used here is a present continuous, which means it's happening now and it will continue to happen. It's not a one-time issue. He's empowered the disciples to actually do those same things that he has done. It's not a money-making business. They are not there to sell their favors of healing or to sell their preaching or to sell their messages. So then today... In our world and in our time, we must also reject the propaganda around us that insists upon payment or suggests that maybe an exchange should take place for the work of God in our own lives. Now, make no mistake, Matthew does soon remind us that those who preach the gospel are worthy of their wage. But Jesus here is telling his disciples they should not minister with expectation of payment in order to then give the message. The proclamation must take place freely as it has been given freely. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I told you this story once before, but I know we have a lot of new people, so I don't, f and I'm sure you maybe have forgotten it, so I'm happy to share it with you again. I, I have a friend who um, stays in 49, and she was telling me that uh, someone came into her business and he said every word to her about her life, and everything he said was true. He called out bad things that had happened. He had called out good things that had happened. He would listed how many children she had, all of those kinds of things. And she was shocked. And he said, and if you're not careful, you know, negative things are going to happen. Bad things will come your way. So let me just pray for you. And you just have to give me 30000 and that's it. So I'm there like, you know, certainly you did not give him the 30000 She said, no, I did. I gave him. And then he prayed for me. I said, you, I would have come and prayed for you for free. <laughs> so she, um, she's a believer, and she, she gave this charlatan payment for something that may, very well may have been right from the kingdom of darkness. So as disciples, we have to be so vigilant about this stuff. We have to fully expect that the true messengers freely give the true message. Now, number five, we reject accumulation and we embrace providence. 
We should have faith in God's providence, not in extra provisions. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. This is a very hard one for me. I come from, you know, a developed country where stores are open 24-7. You can buy whatever you want, whenever you want, with a plastic card that will deceive you into thinking, don't worry, you'll pay it off at the end of the month. So when we moved to Malawi, that was in 2014, we had 26 hockey bags. If you don't know what a hockey bag is, I brought one to show you, which is right here. So of course, our, one of our favorite pastimes as Canadians is to play hockey, but we also use these very large bags to put the uh, hockey equipment in it. And those and people who travel like to use these because you can see they're a lot less uh, heavy than a suitcase or an X-band. 26 of these. This is like a confession today, guys. Because these, I know, it's crazy. Thank you, Emily, from my growth group. Now, I think the weight limit is like 22 or 23 kgs, right? For the number of people we are, we, did, we were entitled to a lot of bags. Clothes, shoes. I had two baby travel cots inside of these. <laughs> baby chairs, ministry supplies, bedding, books, and a whole lot of stuff that I can't remember. If I'm very honest with you today, I'll say I had the faith to trust God. He would keep us healthy. I had the faith to trust him that he would use us for his ministry. But I don't really have a specific memory of praying and trusting God for providence when it came to the material things I thought I needed when I was bringing a large family with a lot of little people here. I trust that you'll still love me. Part of our task as the teaching team is also to go with you in the journey and to express our own struggles and weaknesses within our discipleship. So in verse 9, we see the disciples were instructed not to bring any currency with them. So looking at the verse, brass or copper coins were the local currency. Silver was a Greek currency and gold would have been coined at Rome. So Jesus says, don't even bring the forex. Don't bring the local one and don't even bring the forex. So the words of Christ appear very strong when he's instructing the disciples not to bring financial provision for themselves on the trip. But he goes on further to say, not that you shouldn't receive it or you're not worthy of it or you don't deserve it, but the worker is worth his keep. That is, the provisions will be made for the disciples once they are actually on the journey. So we recently uh, went back to Canada for a home assignment, which is uh, a lot of traveling, preaching in about 20 churches. It was hectic. We traveled at least 30,000 kilometers within the country. And one thing, over and over and over, people would come to us and say, I wanted to go, but I never did. I had always wanted to become someone who served overseas, but it never happened. I'd like to do it right now, but I'm just, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to get there. 
But the principle that can be taken from this passage is this, that Jesus says to go and the needs will be met. So you just need to go. Uh, I, we've, we've developed a habit of when something that we feel is valuable is ruined or wears out or we, it's, it's run out, we, as a family, we say, Lord, you know my need. So I had a, a handbag. It wasn't a really nice handbag, but it did the trick. And it was really wearing out, like it had actually gone into threads. And so I just said, you know, this is getting embarrassing. Uh, I just need to put it in the garbage, and I'll get a new one at some point. And I put it, I, re I remember this so specifically, of putting it into the garbage and just saying, Lord, you know my need. And the next day, someone gave me a brand new purse. I'm, I need to be very clear that I'm not saying anything about prosperity gospel here. But everything I am saying is related to total and full dependence on what Christ can do and will do. Was the handbag really a, a desperate need for me? No, it wasn't. It was like a very minor need, right? But it's about posturing ourselves to rely on Christ's provision. Our, one of our children has a condition with her head that we have to use this special shampoo and we can't find it here. And so someone was mailing us some from Canada and we knew it would get here eventually, but I can remember one night, took, just squeezed the last bit out washed her hair, and I, as I was washing her hair, I said, Lord, you know her need. It arrived in the mail the next day. Like, she didn't even miss one day of not having the treatment. Again, this is not a prosperity gospel, but the temptation that we fall into is to wait until all the pieces fall into place before we can start something or go somewhere or take a step or to do something when God is actually saying the provision will come once you've taken the step. Number six, we reject a poverty mentality and we embrace sacrificial generosity. Provision comes from those who you minister to, but also, of course, indirectly from the master. Verse 10, the worker is worth his keep. Here Jesus is telling his disciples, don't think about what you don't have. Don't think about the things, well, I don't have this and I don't have this and I don't have that. Instead, know that your work that you're doing is worthwhile and the people you are ministering to will care for your needs. I love this church. We've been uh, members here for nearly four years and we have loved every minute. But we do have a serious problem. Our pastor is in another country right now. And part of his task while he's there, which I know he's been very upfront about, is to do fundraising so that he can minister to us. The people that live here, the people who sit under his ministry every single week. We're now a 10-year-old church. It's so quiet. But last week's offering was a month-end offering, and it was 312000 Is our pastor worth his keep? Is our pastor worthy of receiving a salary from within the country, from within his own congregation? I'm not saying this to you lightly, and I'm not saying this as one who is not tithing to this assembly, but as an elder here and a member of this teaching team and as a growth group member from which I find my membership of Flood Church, I have to say this. 
We have to do better. We have to do better. I uh, said to Pastor Humphreys as I was going through this passage, I really don't know if I can, if I can preach this. And he kind of said, well, no, like this is the direction you should take and this is where you should go. I said, no, I know how to preach it. I know how to research it and get it out there. But I don't know if I can stand up there and say the things that the scriptures say to us today. And so I love you dearly and I say it from that place, from a place of love, but also of encouragement. Let's work harder. Let's give more. Let's reject the poverty mentality that says, well, I don't have this, but instead we have to embrace sacrificial generosity. I know there are so many financial pressures. There are so many unmet needs that we face today, but the scripture is so clear. Those who give will receive. Those who sow sparingly will in turn reap sparingly. If you plant a little, you'll get a little harvest. Those who meet the needs of others will have their own needs met. Uh, in, in between our marriage, now I've confessed some of Jeff's sin, so let me confess my own. Amen. When we first got married, which would have been the same year as the Valentine's Day incident, you know, I really struggled with the giving and the tithing, and I thought, oh, like, yeah, but we're students, and we're in college, and we have this much, and how can I give you, like, that much? And, but Jeff has always had a heart of generosity. Giving for him is a spiritual gift, and he has always been very able to do that. And so from early in our marriage, we just, we started to commit to this. Or I should say, he committed to it. I started to commit to it. And, I, you know, I'd fall back, but then make steps forward, and then fall back and, and make steps forward. But Jesus has been so faithful. And I couldn't preach this to you if I wasn't living it here today. There are, it's, it's painstaking, because at times it's done with sweat, and with prayer, but also with willingness. I mentioned that we were in Canada earlier this year, and we were at a conference that was uh, for our national denomination. And it's 100 years they were celebrating. It was a big thing. But they were taking up an offering for church planting. And Jeff and I both felt, you know what, we just have to give whatever it is that we have. And so we counted up all the money we had with us, and it was about 49,000 kwacha. So we just put it all in the offering and, just, and left it with the Lord. This is aside from what we had already, you know, committed to our tithe to the church. And so we go through the whole, semin the whole conference session, and the session ends, and we're leaving the church, and we come up to a pastor who we've met one time in Tanzania. And he said, you know, I just have this small gift for you, and it's just something small, but please... Take it and use it for whatever you need. And we said, okay, you know, thank you very much. And like in our culture, it's very awkward to hand someone cash as, you know, it's like, how do I? <coughs> so he's trying to give it to us and we're trying to receive it and it's just really weird. But we got back and when we looked at the money, it was about 105,000 kwacha. So we had just given all we had. And then later that same time, the Lord not only returned it, but actually doubled it. And again, this is not a prosperity gospel message. I need you to hear that, especially with our pastor away. I would never want <laughs> the wrong message to come across. But it's about rejecting the poverty mentality and embracing sacrificial generosity.
You know, uh, I told Pastor Humphreys I would have a really hard time preaching this message, but, you know, now that I've given a bit of a rebuke, I, fe I feel a lot better. It's turning out so much easier. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Number seven, we reject convenience and we embrace character. The relationships that we seek are based on goodness and pure motives rather than fickleness and personal gain. The disciples are urged in verse 11 to find somewhere worthy for them to stay until they leave. These subtle words imply they should not move about, searching for better opportunity or rather to serve their own stomach. But rather than looking for convenience, they need to seek relationships based on the host, the character of the host rather than what the host can give them. And we're, we're all guilty of this, of looking for relationships that benefit ourselves. What can I get? What can I gain? Who will I get introduced to? What will they give me? How can they help me? But for the Christian, our relationships, we have to be basing them on selfless motives rather than the things that we can receive. Matthew suggests that this moving around is unbecoming to the station of disciples. And the principle can be applied similar, similarly for us. Instead of moving from here to there or from this job to that one, from this church to that one across the street or from this house over to that flat, we need to be less movious. This is my favorite word, one of my favorite words, movious. Some people don't know what it means. So, Edith, what does movious mean? Moviosity. <laughs> movious or moviosity is one who moves around. Number eight is people who have been transformed. We reject idle indifference and we embrace accountability. We believe in naming sinful behavior and the consequences for these actions. So Jesus tells the disciples, if they reject your message, then you should shake the dust off of your feet in any place where they won't hear it. So this is, during this time, it's a very common cultural practice that people, Jews, would do to display indignation or disgust over the defilement of such people. So for instance, when entering Israel, they would do this to remove the feet from the pagan Gentile country that they had just come from because they wouldn't want anything to defile their holy land. So for us, those who reject the kingdom, or for, sorry, in this, the reaction here is the same. Jesus is saying those who reject the kingdom message should be considered as a Gentile. How many find it challenging to name behavior that is sinful? It's, it's so uncomfortable. How many find it easier just to stay quiet when we see something that we know is wrong? So this week, I was driving, and I got to the city center roundabout, which is close to where I live. And there was a man who had uh, a jerry can with handles on the jerry can, and he was filling it with water from the fountain. So you know at that city center roundabout, there's a fountain there. So he was lifting it up. And I was coming up to the roundabout, and I thought that's what I saw, but I thought as I get closer, certainly it, it couldn't be that. And then he, he comes down with the jerry can, and it's like the yellow 20-liter jerry can that has the top cut off of it and the two handles. 
put onto it. And so he's walking down and he's going like this. In a very, and of course, in a very public place, the cars are going round. There, there are people all over the place. From his posture, any observation, any person observing could see, he knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows that taking the water from the fountain is not the, the right thing. But and the looking back and forth is like concerned that someone might try to stop him. But no, but no one did for the time I was in that circle. So this is one, one small example of an issue that we find almost everywhere of how do we hold one to account without offending the person. So let's, let's just be honest. The one who carried the water down from the fountain is the one who did the wrong thing, right? The one who might have told him to return it to the fountain would have been considering not just him to prevent him from doing something less than becoming, but also to the rest of the people who are driving around and seeing the beauty of the fountain. He, he would actually even be considering the fountain itself because when a fountain is totally drained of water, it becomes very dirty with inside. It no longer beautifies the roundabout. And the pump eventually breaks down and dries out because there's no water running through it. So as people who have been transformed, we have to be very willing to hold people to account. We need to reject idle indifference, thinking, well, it's not my fountain. I don't know that person. I'm not paying that water bill, so just let him. Instead, as Jesus urges his disciples, we have to be willing to name the sinful behavior as well as the consequences for the actions. So finally, my last point is also my conclusion, number nine. We reject casual consideration and we embrace commitment to the call. We believe that we are endowed with the responsibility of proclamation and service and we don't look to other people to fulfill that. Let's look back at chapter 9, verses 37 to 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus ex himself expresses this huge task that is right before him. And he tells the disciples, can you pray that the Lord of the harvest would find the workers because the fields are ready? So that's verse 38. But then in chapter 10, verse 1, he's sending out the same people that he asked to pray for that issue. They're the ones who are sent out, but they're also the ones who have been encouraged to pray that people would be sent out. I want to encourage us today to just reject casual consideration of what Christ has called us, his disciples, to do. It's so easy to think that someone else will fix the problem. Another person will come up with a solution. Still, someone else will be the answer. So my uh, work in Malawi is with an organization called Village of Hope. It used to primarily be a very large orphanage and has shifted to community-based orphan care. So in this, in this country, the statistics say that there are 5 million children who are vulnerable. There are 
more than one million who are orphans. And across, across all of the countries in the world, Malawi is one that is increasing every year with orphans. So recently, the Ministry of Gender, is, uh, I was invited to give a presentation about the reintegration process, which is children who used to live at Village of Hope who have gone home to their relatives. So across the country, about 200 children have gone back to their relatives. Uh, and at Village of Hope, there have been 72. So of the 200, just less than half have come from Village of Hope. So this is a government process to send children back to their relatives, if at all possible. And we're a church of young people. And I, I want to ask you and beg you to consider, can you adopt one child? If every Christian Malawian family in this country adopted one child, every orphan would have a home. And thi these are not orphans like, oh, my parents are died, but I have my grandparents. These are children who are found abandoned, found they've been dumped somewhere, they've found wandering in a market. So it's really simple. But you just have to go down to the DC's office in Area 3. You find someone called Jean and Tengwe, and you fill out an application. They come and they do a household assessment. So Village of Hope has been privileged to uh, walk with uh, three different families who have adopted four children here locally. Uh, there are really strict laws about international adoption, so I'm, I'm not even appealing to the international community, but I'm, I'm asking, if you're here and this is your, your home country, can you consider it? Can you? So social welfare has this responsibility of trying to find homes for all of these children that don't have any relatives. At Village of Hope, we have three of them. I said we've facilitated four, and now three still remain needing guardians. So maybe you could consider it. Could you think about opening your home? They might not be your own flesh, but they need a family. They need somewhere to actually call their home. Or what about our unreached people group, the Yao people? 99% of them do not know Christ. And of that 1% that would be considered Christian, this is within Malawi, the whole group is like maybe 4 million between Tanzania and Mozambique, but I'm just concentrating on the ones here. So the 99% of them are Christians. Of that 1%, no, 99% are Muslims. Oh, prophet, prophesy that in Jesus' name. <laughs> this 1%, less than half of that 1% have actually converted from Islam to Christianity. So how is the church going to be empowered to preach to them? Wh what if you went to Mangochi and, and started some sort of ministry that speaks to a religion of works? As disciples, each of us is responsible to take seriously a commitment to the call of mission, of work that is yet to be done. We have to reject that casual consideration. Is Cindy here? I know she's not going to mind me telling this, <coughs> or else I'll beg her forgiveness later. So we're in the same growth group, and about maybe two years ago, she put out a prayer request that said, I feel that God is calling me to do something more, but related to ministry, and I don't know what it is. And so we started praying with her. And she's now our church administrator. 
this is a good time for an amen. Amen. So she took seriously that call that she felt within herself to consider what God might be asking her to do, and she's doing a great job. So as I conclude, I, want, I would like us to consider praying a prayer together. I've just put it up on the screen. So let's stand here. Let's stand up together. I want to assure you the transformation has already taken place, right? Christ has redeemed you. He has saved you. And now those things are being worked out in your everyday life. So let's pray this prayer together. And then the worship team is going to come and lead us in one song. Actually, if they could start coming now, that would be helpful. All across the church, you can see we're responding to God's activity for transformation. We are weak people growing together for transformation. We're coming as we are for transformation. The mission of our church, bringing upcoming generations to Christ for transformation. So let's pray this prayer together, and then the team will lead us. Today, let's read, I surrender. Okay, let's read it together. Ready? One, two, three. Today, I surrender to the transformation that Jesus has made in my heart. I reject cultural principles that decline this transformation, and I embrace kingdom principles that affirm this transformation. So you have already received the transformation because of what Christ did in your heart when you said yes to him. Now be transformed. Amen. Thank you very much today, church. I hope that you've received the encouragement and even the rebuke towards doing more of what God has called us to do as an assembly. Be blessed today.